All right, let's start off with a word of prayer, shall we? Father, we just, we praise you for our time together. Uh, we're so thankful that we can still study your word, uh, we can study your truths, and just ask that you would bless our time, give us wisdom and understanding and insight. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Okay, so today's class, if you guys remember, I went over the different titles we were discussing. So today we're understanding atheism. Is belief in God just a crutch? Or if there is no God, why is there religion? Or if there is a God, why are there atheists? So first off, what qualifies me to teach on this subject? I used to be one. I was a very, very devout atheist. Um, some folks remember, some have heard the story, some have not. So I'll go over it again. So I was not raised in any form of a Christian home. Uh, my dad was a meth addict. My mom was an absolute train wreck herself. So I hated Christianity, and I hated Christians even worse. I was uh, at UCLA in med school at the time, and I spent about two years down there trying to disprove Christianity because I hated it so much. The people that I would talk to would give me just the dumbest explanations for the questions that I asked them. And they were simple questions, and at least I thought simple questions, and they would say the same dumb thing. So you have to have faith, you just have to pray about it. Like, okay. So in other words, I have to turn off my brain and ignore all rules of logic to believe in your God. Yeah, that's not for me. So here I am trying to disprove Christianity. Um, of course, I'm biased because I'm a UCLA grad, right? But I think it's one of the finest libraries on the Western Coast. It's, it's massive. It's six stories. I mean, this library is about 50,000 square feet. Uh, hundreds of thousands of volumes. So, again, you know, in med school, but in my free time, I'm, I'm trying to disprove Christianity. So for two years, what can I do? I can only prove the things that can be proven. So that's the archaeological facts, um, the dates, historical. So basically none of the spiritual stuff, right? That can't be proven anywhere. But here I am proving the historical reliability of the scriptures. And it's disturbing me greatly. So at that point, I all of a sudden say, okay, I'm a Christian. No, no, uh, I didn't. But we'll get into that later on. But I wanted you to understand what qualifies me to teach on understanding atheism that I was a very, very strong one about 20 years ago, okay? So I really wanted to deal with this particular one, what we call the new atheists. What do I mean by the new atheists? Well, who are the old atheists? Well, Freud, Marx, those fellows. And we'll deal with them as well. So the new atheist has this idea that religion itself is wish fulfillment, that it's either a mild dementia kind of lunacy that involves both stupidity, where we are less intelligent if we have faith, and also somewhat mentally imbalanced in one way or another. I get that. I used to believe the very same thing. So our new species of atheists, you might call, quote, the angry atheists, they write differently than Freud and Marx did. These are the ones that have a very um, aggressive attitude in their writings. What's unique about this particular new atheist, this culture, is that you have a coming out party in this culture. You have an atheist pride. Um, in my day, we didn't have that as far as like a, an atheist pride. It's not something that I hid behind um, or, or found shame in, but I, I didn't have it like as a overtly, you know, hi, my name's Sean and I'm an atheist kind of deal. But if we had those conversations, all the better. 
So in order to have a good society with a strong affirmation that atheism is good in the new atheist, you have to have atheism in society to have a good society. Okay, that's the, ten that's the first tenet. Some examples uh, of this, this idea is that religion is bad or somehow intrinsically evil. Some of these modern angry atheists would be Christopher Hitchens in his book, God is Not Great, Richard Dawkins, you guys have undoubtedly heard of him, The God Delusion, Sam Harris, The End of Faith. So they have slogans for this new atheism, quote, we are good people, just not God people. Fair enough. So this new atheism has a claim of superiority. What do I mean by that? Well, either a moral superiority or an intellectual superiority. How do I say a moral superiority? Well, in their claim that they don't have a crutch such as God in order to make them good moral people. Do we have good, I'm not going to use that word, uh, not good, but moral atheists? Absolutely. When I was one, I was not one of them, right? You know, I was the womanizer, I was the druggie, yeah, so no, I was not one of them, but they do exist, okay? The moral atheists. What about the intellectual superiority? Again, yes, um, that claim makes sense in that culture because they're relying on their pure self-found intellect rather than an outside source. They refer to themselves as, quote, the brights, okay? So by contrast, what would that make those with faith? It makes those of us that believe or have faith are not intellectual, we are too dumb simply because we have faith. Yes, I believe that as well. They paint religion as the cause of atrocities, such as the crusade, the inquisition, etc. Yep, I made those arguments as well. When they speak of those with faith, the language is oftentimes quite harsh. So in Sam Harris's book, um, at the end of page 223, he says this, the length between belief and behavior raises the stakes considerably. Some propositions are so dangerous that it may even be ethical to kill people for believing them. This may seem an extraordinary claim but it merely enunciates the ordinary fact about the world in which we live. Certain beliefs place their adherence beyond peaceful means or persuasion. I'll go over that again in Sam Harris's book. Some propositions are so dangerous that it may even be ethical to kill people for believing in them. Wow. Think about that. He is advocating for the euthanasia, the killing of someone for believing in a particular idea or belief. Can we think of other people in history that had the same idea? There's a long list. Stalin, Lenin, Pulte Pot, Nazi Sun, Hitler, right? Let that sink in. Some propositions are so dangerous that it may even be ethical to kill people for believing in them. It does not say but when may it be ethical for believing, for killing people that believe in Christ? At what point does that become a norm in this new culture? This is the kind of language that was used during the French Revolution. You that have studied that. It makes you wonder what these atheists actually are capable of doing. Like I said, it's a different atheist than what I was. These ones are inherently a lot angrier 
than I was. Yes, I dislike Christianity and I dislike Christians, but I wasn't about to advocate for killing people for believing in Christianity or the Bible. I really want to discuss two tenets today about this subject. Number one, I want to deal with the psychological charge that religion is some type of opium or wish fulfillment. I also want to deal with the charge that religion is somehow stupid or irrational or less than intelligent. When we look at the predecessors of these new atheists, Freud and Marx, they have shaped much of our culture of how we think and how we interact today, whether we want to admit it or not, it's, it's true. Throughout history, atheism has been the defining and definite minority in culture. The vast majority of people have either believed in God or some form of a spiritual power. If atheism is really the truth and religion is essentially false, then why have so many people believe in spiritual realities? That's something that has to be addressed in order to maintain their atheism. So the psychological explanation is an attempt to deal with what is a major, major problem for atheism. In other words, does this vast majority of people who believe point to reality, or is something else going on? Or has the vast majority of the population been inherently deceived and only the atheist has the enlightened point or the, the secret knowledge at this, at this time? I believed that when I was an atheist. I believed that somehow I was superior, my intellectual capabilities far exceeded those that had faith, and that I was subject to just, I am the elite, right? I figured it out. Feuerbach, another atheistic uh, psychologist and philosopher, basically argued that religion is a projection. What do you mean by that? That you project something of your humanity out into the universe that somehow or another we are limited in our ability to think or knowledge. So we project a God who is all-knowing. So we might be afraid of the forces that are around us in the universe, so we project a God who is all-powerful. So the idea is that God is a picture of mankind. It's really put up to the nth degree. So what do I mean by, by this projection? Do you guys understand? So, so the idea that as an atheist, you have this knowledge that your knowledge is limited, okay? Or even as a faith-believing human, you have this idea that your knowledge is limited. So you're gonna project this idea of an all-knowing being. Kind of makes you feel safer, right? Do you know what I mean? Like, you guys are going to take a road trip. Don't you want to be riding with somebody that has been there before, or at least has a good GPS that's not going to lose service, or knows how to use a Thomas guy, right? It's, it's, <laughs> it's that idea that we want to have that safety of knowing that there is someone or something above us to lead us through this adventure, whether it be a road trip or life. Karl Marx, anyone not know who Marx was? Okay, good. Karl Marx made the charge that religion is the opiate of the people, especially the ruling classes. The bourgeoisie take religion and use it to their own advantage. They tell poor people that uh, they are in their unjust situations to just take it easy and be content with your situation, and you'll receive your reward eventually. Just be content and everything's gonna be okay. This is Marx's idea. They use religion as a way to placate, just as drugs or an opiate could be used to dull your senses. So religion is used to dull your senses to the injustices of the world. This is directly taken from the Communist Manifesto, which Karl Marx wrote. It prevents the anger 
a violent action that would lead to a revolution, which is what Marx actually desired. He wanted to eliminate religion so that people could see the reality of their situation. So please remember this, with the current wave of Marxist ideology being taught and propagated today, it is much, much more than just the propagation of socialism going on and being taught. This Marxist ideology that socialism is the greater good isn't just about economics, folks. It's about the absolute hatred of any faith-based system that Marx had taught in his Communist Manifesto. Freud taught that religion is actually wish fulfillment. It's essentially a psychological crutch that enables you to face a very difficult universe. So these are some of the predecessors of the new atheists and that the new atheists have taken up this kind of refrain. French atheist Michael Onfray has said, quote, God is a fiction invented by men so as not to confront the reality of their condition. What is he saying? He's saying that we have a, a world that is so inherently messed up, we invent a God so we don't have to deal with the reality of how messed up our world is. It's the modern day fairy tale that makes us feel better about living in such a messed up world that we can hold that there is another world apart from this messed up world that has hope and that's what keeps us going from just you know, other than annihilating ourselves. Does that make sense? That, that, that we've created this hope because the world is so bad? Richard Dawkins said, quote, religion poses a major puzzle to anyone who thinks in a Darwinian way. Sam Harris points to the lunatic influence of religious faith. Christopher Hitchens says, quote, all religions and all churches are equally demented in their belief in divine intervention, divine intercession, or even the existence of the divine in the first place. So I remember a few years back in the Wall Street Journal, yeah, the Wall Street Journal is supposed to be a business publication, right? An article speaking about religion, it painted the atheist in a very favorable light. Speaking about religion as a sort of mild dementia. So you see, these kind of charges are still floating around, even in a supposed business journal like the Wall Street Journal. It's not in just academic conversations. It's in everyday, quote unquote, journalism. It's not far-fetched to see that this new atheism sees anyone who is in their culture who views someone with religious beliefs immediately sees them as unworthy for any kind of cultural leadership, right? Because the idea of anyone with a faith-based belief, you are mildly somehow demented or retarded. There's something fundamentally wrong with the way that you think. So the idea that in this new atheism culture, we come across people that have faith we shouldn't let them be in any type of cultural leadership position because it may infect the rest of them. It kind of paints this picture that somehow we will look down on anyone with religious faith. That's quite literally the stated purpose in a number of new atheist writings. Now there are partial truths in each of these claims from these writers. I'll admit that. That explains their popularity, of course. Now with a partial truth, you can't have it represent a whole truth. What do I mean? Well, that would then make it an untruth. Take, for example, the claim that religion is a projection. I would agree, sometimes it is. However, there are times when we can project our own desires or memories on the universe or onto God. That does not in itself mean that we do that at times 
that every faith-based system in its entirety as a whole is nothing more than a projection. And the whole system is false. Okay, let me get a little bit more personal as you can understand that. Take, for example, the projection of our earthly father onto our heavenly father. I myself struggle, and I have a very, very difficult time with this. Because my father, my earthly father, was a horrific, horrific man. Very abusive. He was a meth addict that culminated, again, this, I tell you this just so you can understand that I don't want the, okay. That culminated in the end on September 22nd, 2008, I had to watch him commit firearm suicide in front of me with one of my weapons. An awful, awful person. However, even today, knowing the truth of scripture, I still project onto our Heavenly Father those attributes that I experienced from my earthly father. And I know it's wrong, guys. I know it's not true, but I still do it, right? Like prayer. I have a very difficult time with prayer, with asking our Heavenly Father for anything for me because in the back of my mind, I don't, he doesn't care. Why would he care about anything that I would need and or want, right? So I understand this tenet of the new atheist, this idea that some parts of faith are a projection. I still do it to this day, right? But it doesn't make the entire faith false, right? Just because I struggle and I know I have this warped sense, this warped view of our Heavenly Father based on my earthly father, it doesn't make the entire view or the entire Bible false, right? Uh, let's see. Certainly you can say religion can be an opiate. Oh, no doubt. We do see where religion can be abused and misused. Take cults, for example, like the Branch Davidians. This doesn't mean that faith is intrinsically false or wholly false because it has been misused in that way, right? Cults certainly use religion as an opiate in order to manipulate their followers to get them to believe and do the various things that they want to do. But that's them, right? That's, that's that one function. That doesn't mean every faith-based system everywhere has the same problem intrinsically in it. Um, does that make sense? Right? Okay, good. Religion can also be wish fulfillment. Particularly, you find this a lot when you talk to people today. Has anyone seen, I think it's either on Netflix or on Amazon Prime, um, An American Gospel? I highly, highly recommend you guys look at it. Jess, did you go see it with all you? No? So, it's a two-part series. Anyways, you find this a lot when you talk to people today, this wish fulfillment. I'm speaking specifically about the prosperity gospel, and that's what this this two-part series um, deals with. It's the name it and claim it kind of nonsense. People will say, my God is a God of fill in the blank. Usually, it's love, right? My God is a God of love. People believe that God has to be the way that they think about him. Well, that's dangerous. That's extremely dangerous. Take my view from my earthly father. If I believe that God had to be the way that I'm projecting on to him, that's a problem. Right? That's vastly different from the God of the Bible. I would agree with the atheist that there is a type of toxic faith. A faith that can be poisoning. That, however, does not mean that all faith everywhere is therefore toxic. Right? An argument against abuse is not an argument against use. 
Let me say that again. An argument against abuse is not an argument against use. Let that sink in and, and mull that around a bit. So let's look at this idea that all religion is stupid. Are all religious people stupid or irrational? Well, you guys know where I stand there, certainly not. But that is the impression that's given. Not too long ago, in the Washington Post, the Washington Post, folks, okay, there was a front page article where the, quote, journalist said that Christians are poor, uneducated, and easily led. Okay, are there some Christians that are poor, uneducated, and easily led? Yes. Are there some Christians that are extremely wealthy, highly, highly educated, and very stubborn in their beliefs and not easily led anywhere? Yes. So that idea, we need to note that most, some of the most intelligent people that have ever lived have actually been believers. Even some atheists admit that. Stephen Jay Gould. Anyone hear of him? Yeah? He said... An atheist, uh, he said about scientists, that about 40% of scientists or more usually are believers. And this has been true for at least the past 20 years or so. So that 40% of scientists have some sort of belief in God or spiritual authority. So here's what Gold says, quote, that either half of my colleagues are enormously stupid, or else the science of Darwinianism is fully compatible with religious beliefs and equally compatible with atheism. Well, see, that, that's the problem. This is not the attitude that many of the new atheists take to people with religious faith. They say, you can't have a rational thinking mind and yet still believe in any type of spiritual authority. Gould, who is not a Christian, by the way, he's an evolutionary biologist, Stephen Jay Gould, quite a brilliant biologist, by the way, but he himself even admits the science of Darwinianism is fully compatible with religious beliefs and equally compatible with atheism. So it just matters on how you view the evidence at that point, right? Another question you must ask, and it's an analogy that we hear of all the time. Is religion like believing in the tooth fairy or Santa Claus? I used that one, right? That is the same thing you're believing in this magical man in the sky. Um, just like uh, a youngster will believe in either the Tooth Fairy or Santa Claus. Do I believe that? Of course not. We naturally outgrow those beliefs as we get older. Yet people in their full maturity, spiritual maturity, physical maturity, still have belief in God. Well, how is that the same then, right? If we just naturally gravitate, does anyone in here still believe in Santa Claus before I ruin Christmas for you? <laughs> okay, good. So we, we, we're all in admittance here that, that we just naturally outgrow those ideas, right? Of these fairy tale nonsensical ideas. Now think about that. I really want you to ponder that. If we naturally, just a byproduct of getting older, outgrow the belief in the Tooth Fairy, Easter Bunny, Santa Claus, all of this other stuff, how is it? that we don't naturally outgrow our belief in God with some highly, highly intelligent people. Why isn't it the same? People in their full maturity still believe in God. Does faith mean blind trust or irrational? I used to believe that. Dawkins says this, quote, Faith means blind trust in the absence of evidence, even in the teeth of evidence. Okay. 
<laughs> I honestly don't know where he got this, but he missed about the entirety of Christian history when he's talking about missing evidence. So Dawkins lives in Oxford. Um, anyone ever travel to England or Oxford? No? You have, Joyce? You didn't go to Oxford? Okay. So in, in Oxford, you can go to any of the libraries there, and you see tens of thousands of books that deal with religious perspectives and contain great arguments on all different kinds of levels that address every conceivable objection that can be raised throughout the ages. You may not like the arguments and think that they are lacking, yet I would hope that Dawkins would at least address the best of these arguments and show where they are flawed. He doesn't even do that. He just assumes that there is no such thing. By the way, Sam Harris does that very thing in his first chapter of his book, End of Faith. He repeatedly says, quote, there is no evidence. It is utterly irrational. They are without reason or any justifying ground at all, speaking of Christians. It's like he's totally ignorant of the whole history of the Christian faith, just as I was. I made those claims myself. Just to give you one instance of a believer, W.H. Griffith Thomas was the principal of Wycliffe Hall in Oxford. He said this, Faith affects the whole of man's nature. It commences with the conviction of the mind based on adequate evidence. It continues with the confidence of the heart or emotions based on conviction. And it is crowned by the consent of the will, by means of which the conviction and confidence are expressed in conduct. What is he saying? Let me, let me transform that to English. Okay, what's, what's he saying at this point? He's saying to have a truly transformative faith, it has to be based off of reason, and it has to be based off of evidence. Those folks that, okay, I'm going to tread lightly here, but do people get saved like at the Harvest Crusades in Riverside with Great Glory? Yes. Do people merely have quote-unquote religious experiences at the Harvest Crusade? They just get caught up in the euphoria, the emotions. Yes. What he's saying here is true transformative faith is going to be based off of evidence. It's going to be based off of fact. It's not going to be based off of wishful thinking or just a, a fluffy feeling that you had at one time. That will fall, right? C.S. Lewis, of course, you guys know I'm going to quote Lewis sometime in this course, said that he believes in enough probable evidence to believe that faith in Christ is true. If you guys remember, Lewis began his life as what? An atheist, just as I did. He said that if you believe there is more probable evidence for atheism than Christianity, then go ahead and believe that. But he believed that there was more evidence for Christianity than atheism. So let's come back to this idea that faith is either a projection, opiate, or a wish fulfillment. Well, at this point, Freud, Marx, and these new atheists as well, commit a logical fallacy. And that fallacy is what's called begging the question. What do I mean by that? You completely circumvent the question itself. You don't refute the actual question. You'll just start making attacks on either a person's character or whatever. It just goes around it, right? Now, do we see that happening today? How about in any type of political debate? My gosh, <laughs> right? C.S. Lewis talks about it in his classic essay, and it's only a few pages. You guys can look it up on the internet. I recommend you read it. It's called Bulverism. B-U-L-V-E-R-I-S-M. It's awesome. 
Remember, C.S. Lewis wrote this in about 1946, okay? So when you read this, you're going to be astounded at what he's describing and what you see today, particularly in political debates. So in the essay, he says, quote, If you think that my claim to have a large balance on my bank account is wish fulfillment, it might be good to do this. First, see whether I have such an account and add up the amount in it before proceeding to the psychological charge. Otherwise, deal with the fact first and establish it, and then I suppose you can go with the psychological motives of that idea that you might have invented it. So Lewis said this, you must show a man is wrong before you start explaining why he is wrong, right? What Lewis does in this essay, he invents an imaginary character named Ezekiel Bolver. This character then comes to this realization when he is five years old, when he hears his mother say to his father, they were arguing, his father was arguing that two sides of a triangle were greater than the third. His mother said, oh, you say that because you are a man. Okay, at that moment, Bulver assures us that refutation is no necessary part of an argument. You don't have to actually deal with the argument itself. Assume your opponent is wrong, then explain his error, and the world will be at your feet. Attempt to prove that he is wrong and still try to figure out whether he is wrong or right, and the frustration will force you to the wall. Lewis saw Bulwerism at work in every political argument. He said that until Bulwerism is crushed, reason can play no effective part in human affairs. So see how many times today where this Bulwerism fallacy is used, where name-calling or people are put into boxes for rejecting the arguer's idea. So what's today's Bulwerism? <coughs> You're racist. That's today's Bulwerism, right? Almost any time you have these, these conversations with folks where you are disagreeing on societal norms or you're disagreeing on the way uh, morality is portrayed or should be, what does it come back to? You're racist. You're a misogynist. Now, anyone uh, here heard of Ben Shapiro? Okay. <laughs> I'm not going to quote exactly what Shapiro said because he curses and it's being recorded, <laughs> but at this point, Shapiro said, we have this going on today where they say, you're a racist, or you're an idiot, and he says, well, at that point, just call him an a-hole. This is, you have no evidence that I am a racist, so I have no evidence that you're an a-hole, so I'm just going to call you that, and then we'll be good, right? So you see this bulwaristic fallacy just continue over and over again where you're not actually dealing with the argument itself, you just resort to you know, pigeonholing somebody in a box of some type or just flat out calling them a name. It's much easier to simply reject the other person's argument than to conquer it by refutation, right? Because if you conquer it by refutation, then what? Well, then you really gotta be engaged. You gotta examine all the facts of both, of both your side and of their side. Now, when I was an atheist, was I willing to examine the facts of my belief? No, I wasn't. So I would just resort to saying, you know, you're a Bible thumper, or you're a fanatic, or any of those things, and then just be done with you, right? Make it as insulting as possible, and that person would hopefully go away. They did. I was a jerk at that time. So if you try to, then what? Well, you're subject to logic. You're subject to them refuting your ideas or your beliefs. 
it's much safer to just call people names and put them in the boxes rather than try to adjust, address the actual arguments themselves. And that's the key point. That's the difficult part, is to address the actual argument rather than the person, right? And that's today in our relativistic culture, is that somehow we equate with someone that has this argument, it equals the person as their entirety. It's like their whole identity. No, it, it, it's not. I can, Roger, have we ever disagreed on something? Yeah, we have. Yep, election. No, we haven't. So, Roger and I can disagree on theological tenets. Does that mean that somehow, since I disagree with Roger on a particular theological tenet, I am uh, assassinating or attacking Roger's character or his self-worth as a whole or as a Christian? No, it just means we have different ideas. Get over it. Right? Welcome to the human nature. It's not that complicated. So, let me give you more ammo on this charge that religion is projection, opiate, or wish fulfillment. Do some things we wish for exist? Well, I think the answer is yes. There's hunger. Well, there happens to be food. There's thirst. There happens to be drink. Some of you today are experiencing drowsiness right now. There happens to be sleep, right? To cure these things. Coffee. Or coffee, right? So there are many natural desires and corresponding fulfillment to those desires. There's also spiritual desires, such as the desire um, for awe to be in contact with the holy, or a desire for meaning, or for immortality. If these are natural desires, and natural desires have a corresponding fulfillment, then there is a real fulfillment for spiritual desires as well, right? Just because we wish for something does not prove its non-existence. Like I said, I wish for an In-N-Out double-double right now. That would be awesome. Does that mean In-N-Out double-doubles don't exist? No, doggone it, I just got to drive two hours into Oregon to go get one, okay? And I don't have time to do that today, but I know that In-N-Out double-doubles exist. So these things, not the double-double, but the spiritual things, might be cosmic pointers rather than things we invent to just satisfy ourselves. Cosmic pointers to that which is beyond. Some religious views are contrary to our wishes, right? How many young men wish for promiscuity? Are there Christian views that are contrary to wishing for promiscuity? Yeah, there are, okay? R.C. Sproul said this, why would the disciples invent a God whose holiness is more terrifying than the forces of nature that would provoke them to invent a God in the first place. Right? It doesn't make any sense. Let me read that again. Why would the disciples invent a God whose holiness is more terrifying than the actual forces of nature that would provoke them to invent a God in the first place? Does that make sense? When you take a look at the character of God as taught in the scriptures, the idea of God's holiness is far more frightening than anything that can naturally occur to you on this planet, right? So with that in mind, what Sproul is saying, why? Why would the disciples invent that type of God? That's scary. That doesn't make any sense. That makes life worse, in my opinion, right? You wouldn't easily invent these types of things to make your life more simple. You just made it worse. You just made it fearful. 
You might also ask if all faith is due to irrational forces, it has some strange implications. So Dawkins says that all religious faith is the idea of, okay, the, when Dawkins was writing this, was, this was before Facebook, so he says the idea of memes, M-E-M-E-S. Now we're not talking about funny little comics of stuff. Now let me explain Dawkins' idea of memes. The idea that there is entity, invisible, unverifiable, and the reason why people come to faith is that they have this meme that is a part of them, and it jumps from person to person, kind of like a flea or a virus. Yes, this is one of the world's greatest evolutionary biologists. There's a religious virus or flea that jumps infecting people to people to people. Okay? Like fleas, it spreads because of these memes that end up impacting them. It's a type of, quote, God virus. If memes actually existed, then that would actually deny reflective thought. What do I mean by that? If anyone believes in what they believe because of a virus, then there is no objective or reflective thought. So this is self-defeating even in Dawkins' view, right? That means if me, now being a Christian, were infected by this God virus, then the atheist would be infected by the anti-God virus, right? And neither one of us have any reflective or original thought. It's just caused by an outside virus. So even his idea of atheism is nothing more than a virus. Well, and who the heck is right? Right? If you have no reflective or objective or rational thought, it's just a cause from different flea-like things jumping from person to person, who's right? Right? If you can't have objective, rational. Yeah, Roger. Wouldn't that mean that everybody would be a Christian? Or an atheist. One of the two. Yeah, correct. It's involuntary and uh, Yeah, and just a mental delusion. So those listening at home, Roger asked, wouldn't that mean that everyone would just then be a Christian or an atheist if the idea that Faith comes from an involuntary flea, god-like virus thing, jumping from person to person? Yeah, it would. So if there is a god, right? Here's the obvious question. If there is a god, why are there atheists? Why do people out there exist that do not believe in his existence? I think it's very plausible, actually, to flip it on this point, and I realize this later on in life, to say that atheism itself is a projection rather than Christianity. The very desire to be free of God and without accountability. Yep, that 100% was me. Although I was not a Christian, how did I feel about my uh, you know, drug and, and fornication lifestyle? Was I proud of it? Did I, did I go introduce somebody at you know first time? I know, Hi, I'm Sean. I sleep with as many women as possible. No. I wasn't proud of that. What was I desiring? What was I projecting onto my atheistic faith? I wanted to be free of God and His accountability, whether or not I recognize it as Him or not. I wanted to live the life that I wanted to live without any repercussions. Are there natural repercussions to that type of lifestyle? Yeah, absolutely. The very desire to be free of God and without accountability that I would say that leads to atheism as an opiate for the conscience. It was for me. It was and is indeed wish fulfillment. There is a wishing of the death of the Heavenly Father. 
It's amazing how many atheists make the claim that they want to believe in their atheism. It is wish fulfillment. Another atheist, Thomas Nagel, confessed to a fear of religion itself. He said, quote, I want atheism to be true. It isn't that I don't believe in God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. Pretty renowned atheistic philosopher. He himself even admits, I just didn't have the guts back then to admit that that's why I was choosing atheism over uh, belief. I didn't want the universe to be like that. I didn't want there being an accountability to my lifestyle choices and actions. If all of our thoughts are materialistically determined, then what holds true by the atheist as well, right? Just like Roger pointed out. Who is it to say that anybody is right or correct in their beliefs? This is trying to prove that all proofs are invalid. Now stay with me here, this is another Lewis thing. Lewis said, quote, the problem of Marx and Freud is the problem of trying to prove that all proofs are invalid. If you fail, you fail. If you succeed, you fail even more. For the proof that all proofs are invalid must be invalid itself. All right, let me unpack this, what, what Lewis is saying. He's saying, if you're trying to prove that anyone that anyone that has a belief, that has a proof behind it, if you're trying to prove that all of those are invalid, okay, great, good luck to you. If you fail in proving that, great, then you just failed in proving that. But if you succeed, that's a greater problem than failing. If you succeed, then that means even your tenet of trying to prove why that belief is invalid, yours is too. Because you just completely dismantled the system in which we can prove anything to be true. Does that make sense? Okay, leave it to Lewis writing in the 40s to come up with something like this. So I know this is a lot, um, a lot to unpackage, so I'm not going to keep yammering here. But I do want to open it up for questions, comments, emotional outbursts. None, really? <laughs> we just up, yes. Yeah. On, and but they still hold all 
curious as your thoughts on the works of, I believe it was pronounced Frederick Nietzsche. Uh-huh, Nietzsche. Yeah, God is dead. Uh-huh. Um, what about it? What about Nietzsche? Just sort of like, um, was there any specific uh, reputations you had for his works? Yeah, so Nietzsche, if you guys are, are not familiar with Frederick Nietzsche, um, his whole tenet was God is dead. As a matter of fact, it was on the cover of Time magazine in 1968, uh, God is dead, declaring Frederick Nietzsche. This whole idea that, uh, that we just went over, that God cannot possibly exist um, because it's nothing more than a projection based on our own irrational, and his uh, ideas, his own irrational um, feelings or, or thought projections to create a dead God. So what were some of the problems that Nietzsche ran into? Well, his ideas were primarily self-refuting, um, right? His idea was, and you guys have heard the most famous quote from Nietzsche, that which doesn't kill you only makes you stronger. Okay? So we, we get into this idea with Nietzsche that we are all there is. Well, if you go back further than Nietzsche, we are all there is. See, Nietzsche was on the right track, um, but he should have read a little bit further back in history. He should have went all the way back to, to René Descartes. What do I mean by that? Because Nietzsche started questioning things. He started questioning reality. He started questioning uh, whether or not we exist. He started questioning whether or not God exists. But then he stopped there. So, so Descartes actually continued Nietzsche's train of thought. And he went on and on and on further. And then he came up with the famous tagline, I think, therefore I am. Uh, what did he mean by that? He meant that since I'm here thinking, I must exist, right? What is causing this thought? So the idea that Nietzsche uh, probably ended up taking from Descartes, but not directly. See, Descartes had this idea that the, the world was ran by, or controlled, or, or made by these demon-like creatures um, that were highly, highly evil. And he wanted to ignore, get out of this evil, evil world. And in this, that's when he was questioning, well, does it indeed exist? And Nietzsche kind of went on the other end of that, saying, yes, the world exists, but I don't believe in a holy or a good God exists, and I believe it's all part of an illusion, right? Even our own existence. Yes, Nietzsche went that far. So the idea that, okay, if you have an illusion, there has to be somebody to be deceived, right? Plain and simple. You, you can't have an illusion without someone being illusioned. It doesn't work that way. And that's where Nietzsche failed miserably at that point. He didn't, he didn't realize that idea. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, he, he didn't come to that realization that, you know, since I'm doubting this, since I'm thinking that this is all an illusion, okay, an illusion to who? <laughs> you know, how can you call it an illusion? Great. Somebody's got to be illused, or however you say it. Someone has to be deceived at that point. Good question with Nietzsche. Uh, any other? To believe in atheism would be to say, oh, this is some kind of accident or imagination or something. Yeah. And, you know, it takes the reality out of everything because this is real. 
I believe it does. I, I, I'm 100% with you. The comment for those listening at home, to, to believe in atheism is to take reality out of the equation to believe that this is nothing more than some type of cosmic accident, right? I mean, we'll take a look at something as technologically advanced as this cell phone. There is more technology in this phone, make no mistake about it, than put a man on the moon in 1963. Way more technology in this phone. Okay? Now, let's be fair. Let's say that the pieces of the phone, the silicon chips, the transistors, everything else was already existed, and I just laid it here on the table, spread it out. Right. At what point in time do you think me having all the parts of this phone spread out on this table, how long is it going to take for those parts to come together and form this very intricately working phone? Well, first you have to create the super glue. <laughs> super glue, everything else, right. I said, but, but let's, let's give, a, give a head start here and say all those pieces already are in existence. See, if we recognize that that mere fact of trying to have a phone self-create itself from its pieces can't happen no matter any amount of time, then how do we come to the conclusion that the world, all that's in it, humans, life itself, how do we come to that conclusion that those things can just self-replicate and self-produce? Uh, you know, we can't, not logically at least. And it comes down, down to, and I, I will um, very, very much debate this with atheists, like I said, because as I, as a former one, whether I wanted to admit it or not, I just didn't want to believe in God. So I ignored or somehow discounted what I know to be inherent scientific proof, actual real scientific evidence. And I just, threw it out the window because I didn't want there to be God. Now, some of you, if you type this quote into Google, because I can't remember the author's name, but he was an evolutionary biologist, and he said this, and it's one of my favorite quotes because it sums up my lifestyle, BC, before Christ, and it sums up a lot of other atheists' lifestyles and, and beliefs. He said, he's talking about the, the creation of life, since we're on this subject, thank you. So in the creation of life, there's two possible explanations for how life got on this planet. Either we have spontaneous generation leading to the creation of life. No, side note, what's spontaneous generation? Well, if you guys remember before, Francisco Reddy, Louis Pasteur, Madame Curie, and others, they would have meat sitting out on the counter, and all of a sudden there would be flies. And they'd be like, well, the meat produced the flies spontaneously. No, that's not how that works. We understand that now, right? Okay, so that's... As you were, fast forward, so and now he's saying that spontaneous generation creating life, or a special creative act from God. But I do not wish to believe in God, so I choose to believe what I know to be scientifically impossible, the spontaneous generation leading to the creation of life on this planet. And that sums up my belief at that time perfectly, absolutely perfectly, I just chose to not believe what I knew to be true because I didn't want the universe and I didn't want my life to be like that. Period. Yeah. Oh, did you find it? Pilar? Yeah, that's, that's right. Thank you. <laughs> okay. I, I knew I'd read it somewhere. Yeah, funny. So is that why there's been a, what seems to me a concerted effort to destroy the fact-based science that we used to know? 
it's not fact-based anymore. It's I agree with you there. You want it to be. Yeah, and yeah, I, I would agree with you. I mean, whether we want to again admit it or not, whether we are people of faith, and I'm going to be fair on both sides, whether we are people of faith or we are atheists, our worldview is going to encroach on how we look at the world and how we experiment on the world, right? Okay. I'm standing in front of the, the Grand Canyon, an atheist is standing next to me in front of the Grand Canyon. The atheist says, wow, millions of years of the Colorado River carved this out. By the way, if you don't know, the Colorado River runs north and south uphill. Last I checked, you know, you can't have that canyon being carved from a river running uphill. So there's no way that river carved that canyon. Get into that on a later day. Or me, a creationist, looks at that and says, wow. The flood receded and washed out this Grand Canyon in about an hour. Okay, based on how we interpret the world, on our faith-based system, make no mistakes about it, I have a faith that God created the world. The atheist has a faith that the world created itself. Can you prove it? No. It is a faith. Please be clear about that. And we're both going to interact with the world based on our preconceived notions. And what is happening, what Bonnie pointed out, is absolutely true. It is happening. Um, in science right now that we are trying to get away from fact-based evidential science. What do I mean by evidential science? The scientific method. You know, you can completely prove something by repeatable, verifiable evidence. And now it's just becoming hypothesis and, and just theory and, hey, it, it might work. Maybe not, but we're going to accept it as fact regardless. <laughs> That's weird to me, you know, as, as a scientist. I think that's a very weird way to, to do the scientific method. Well, they don't want people to think. They're training people not to think. You know. That's correct. Yeah, the whole idea is, and we looked at it in Marx, um, Karl Marx, the Communist Manifesto, the whole idea, yeah, is to train the masses to not think. Not everybody, Ron's, just, just the, the, you know, the, the have-nots, <laughs> us, us normal people. Yeah. Believe in God means I'm accountable to Him. Correct. Because I wasn't the one doing the creating. Nope. So I'm accountable. Yep. And not everybody wants to be accountable. No, not everybody wants to be accountable. Not even close. I sure as goodness <laughs> didn't. I didn't want to be accountable. You think you. But now here I am, fully accountable. Was I fully accountable then too? Yeah. <laughs> I just didn't, didn't acknowledge it. <laughs> you know, it, it didn't change my circumstances. I'm still accountable. But praise God, I still have that accountability, but it's not my problem anymore. <laughs> Christ took that for me. Amen. Yeah. Um, just earlier you were commenting on, like, our relative culture and how it's really hard to separate the argument from the person. saying those arguments, I mean, was I like straight up Linda Blair style, demon possessed, you no know, pea soup shooting out of my mouth kind of thing? No. 
However, was I demon controlled at that point? Yes. Look at my lifestyle at that point. I was the farthest from godliness at that point. You betcha. So, I did have a good friend, still do to this day, that kept at it. And he realized that it wasn't me. Yeah, I was a jerk at that point, but there was something standing behind me that was even jerkier. And it wasn't just me. He kept at it over and over and over. Maybe that's why I have a love for In-N-Out Double Doubles, because uh, it's a different story. But yeah, one day he brought over a bag of Double Doubles, and we just sat and studied creation science for like eight hours. It was awesome. Really, really rocked my world, my atheistic world at that point. Not to mention what was going on at the same time with me trying to disprove Christianity at UCLA. So, yeah, fun times. But thank you for that. Absolutely, we do have to realize that it's not, it's not that person. And this, and this idea that an idea equals a person, it's just not true, folks. You can have different ideas. It doesn't equal you as a person. Period. It, it doesn't mean you yourself are just a wretched human being because you happen to believe in something that's off. And we want to re- we want to try to put somebody in a box and want to reduce it down to like that specific present conversation and want to try to make you project what what might be next for the person like maybe like that one little conversation maybe having an effect or not instead of like remembering that like a whole person is a whole set of experiences right and a whole you know story like we could with trauma and triumph and uh, the sleepedness and awakeness you know like mm-hmm. there's so much um, uh, leading up to that moment that so mm-hmm. often Oh, oh, I know, absolutely. And, and the idea that a person is, is, you know, the reason why they are the way they are undoubtedly is the sum of their experiences, right? And, and you can't overlook that. You, you have to acknowledge that. You know, so I had both sides when I was an atheist. I had the folks that were very, very harsh in their responses to me as Christians. Uh, did that do any, any good? No, not at all. Um, I also have the folks, bless their heart, they're very, very loving and very compassionate. Just, they just didn't have the answers. They had the dumb ones, in my opinion, but you have to have faith to just pray about it. And God, by His sovereignty and by His grace, you know, led me to I guess, a hatred <laughs> for him at that point to try and disprove Christianity. And of course, my buddy that never stopped praying for me and was always there no matter how much I'd cuss him out for his faith or anything. And he's still my best friend today. I mean, we've been, you know, 30 some odd years now. Gosh, we're getting old. <laughs> but, anyways, um, so I'll close this in prayer. I'll hang out for a bit. If anybody has any further questions, okay? Father, again, Lord, we just praise you and we thank you um, for your redemptive grace. God, it's amazing that you can even reach in and save a wretch like me, Lord. I just pray that um, as we go about our week, these things that we talk about, um, that they would would have an impact, that they would definitely hit home, Lord. Um, Let us think about them and just, just continue 
uh, to search for you, whether we're believers or not, Lord. That's my biggest prayer. That if we don't believe, then maybe go down the path you led me. Prove it. In Christ's name I pray, Lord. Amen.